speaker today, I uh, guess preacher is Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove, uh, Durham's own. He lives uh, with his family and others uh, in Walltown, just on the other side of uh, Duke's East Campus, uh, in Rutba House, uh, a hospitality house um, that has been uh, really inspiring uh, for many uh, in the ways they show hospitality and live the gospel in a very local way um, with neighbors. Uh, Jonathan is also involved with the School for Conversion, um, and, and we've partnered uh, with others with them uh, through some various things in the past. Um, uh, Natasha Sistrunk Robinson was here for reading, uh, also uh, when we did the 13th uh, viewing uh, with some friends uh, from School for Conversion. So uh, we, we love what they do and, and the way they partner uh, around town uh, for uh, justice and uh, community building um, and advocacy. Uh, also part of School for Conversion, and I'm sure Jonathan will talk a little bit about it today, is the Ann Atwater Freedom Library hosted uh, there in Walltown uh, that, that uh, Jonathan curates uh, with others and is open and available for, um, for community use. Uh, lastly, uh, Jonathan's really busy these days um, in his role with uh, Reverend Barber in the Poor People's Campaign, a uh, continuation and a reinvigoration of uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's uh, Poor People Campaign that has come about in these last couple years to form uh, these amazing um, strange friendships and uh, fusion po uh, politics partnerships um, and uh, so we're thrilled to have uh, Jonathan this morning talking about his friend and mentor, Ann Atwater. I'm going to invite Sarah Brumeyer to come uh, and read our scripture from Luke's Gospel. I'm reading from Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 18. Jesus was telling them a parable about their need to pray continuously and to not be discouraged. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected people. In that city, there was a widow who kept coming to him, asking, Give me justice in this case against my adversary. For a while, he refused, but finally said to himself, I don't fear God or respect people, but I will give this widow justice, because she keeps bothering me. Otherwise, there would be no end to her coming and embarrassing me. The Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. Won't God provide justice to his chosen people who cry out to him day and night? Will he be slow to help them? I tell you, he will give them justice quickly. But when the Son of Man comes, will he find faithfulness on earth? It's the word of God. Thanks so much. It's good to be with you all this morning and uh, really good to uh, sing with you and to uh, see that when you had a chance to talk to one another, you didn't want to be interrupted. I'm always encouraged by that in a church. We live in fractious times and whether you turn on the TV or the Twitter or whatever, there's uh, lots of things that are uh, making people feel divided from one another, and a lot of people feel alone, at least the folks I talk to. And so it's good to be in communities where we're getting knit back together by songs and by fellowship. And um, it's good to hear that y'all uh, eat together when you gather, too. I think uh, growing food and eating it together is a good way we get knit together as well. I'm also really encouraged that y'all are doing this series with uh, celebrating our local saints, and it is a great honor 
today for me to remember with you Durham's persistent widow, uh, Ann Atwater. So um, if you would join me in prayer, I'll do what I can to uh, preach this text. Let's pray. Oh Lord, whenever you call women and men to preach, you run the risk of putting your treasure in earthen vessels, precious, precious water for our spirits in clay pots that are liable to be cracked. And so I pray as we gather this morning before your word that I might become less so that you could become more. Please hide me behind your cross. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, I don't know uh, about y'all over here at Oak Church, but at uh, St. John's Baptist Church, where I'm a member, the uh, old folks in particular these days say that it's a praying time. Y'all know what that means? When the old folks say it's a praying time, it means that... uh, Things aren't all that easy, and they don't appear like they're getting easier anytime soon. I uh, have a distinct memory of the first Sunday after the election in November of 2016. The male chorus was on. Most of the members of our male chorus are over 70. The oldest member is 99 this year. Uh, But the male chorus was on. Uh, Men who have seen a lot uh, in American history and uh, who had just witnessed, of course, the election of a president who had been endorsed by the KKK. And uh, uh, there was a lot of tension in the community, a lot of anxiety in the church. I'll never forget the male chorus getting up and choosing as the selection for their uh, first song, I'll Be All Right. That old song that says, I'll be all right, I'll be all right, I'll be all right after a while. It's a praying time. Uh, There have been shootings in our city just this week. And there was a vigil just yesterday where people gathered at the church where many of us gather regularly to uh, 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 pray and work together for a nonviolent Durham. A man was shot in the street and died in the yard of that church just over in East Durham. There was a gathering there yesterday, a public witness against violence in our city. It's a, it's a praying time. We spent uh, last week over in Walltown, as I know y'all are very much here these days, talking about the development that's happening in our community and how it's impacting people. We had a meeting about the mall that's been purchased by uh, a, a big developer that has offices in London and Mumbai and all over the world and has $7.5 billion in assets, but we're not sure what their plan is for this place that's been such a central part of our community and of course we're all talking about how anybody can afford to live in Durham anymore and we have on the ballot uh, here just this coming week an affordable housing bond and so we were having a conversation in our neighborhood about what that might mean and how we could work together to use the resources that we do have and that we can pull together to make housing affordable in Durham. It's a praying time. There are lots of changes, there are things that we can't control that scare the heck out of us, and there are things that we uh, do have some influence over that we still engage with fear and trepidation often. 
it's a praying time. And if you look through Scripture, one of the things that strikes me is that the saints of Scripture, those real-life examples of how God's grace can be made real and fleshed out in history, in human life, saints emerge in praying times. Moses is drawn up out of the river when the babies are getting slaughtered in Egypt and is called to lead God's people in a praying time if there ever was one. Queen Esther, you remember? She's there in the palace of the king in a praying time when a plan is underfoot to have everybody killed. And she says, her uncle says to her, maybe you've been called for such a time as this. It's a praying time. It's a praying time, of course, when Daniel is living in a kingdom where they rule that his prayers are illegal and he prays anyway in an act of divine obedience, which we sometimes have to call civil disobedience. Daniel prays and goes into the lion's den to face those powers, those forces of evil that can take our life and yet to trust that God is powerful enough to meet us in that place. That is the praying time. I was thinking in light of our text this morning, Luke says that Jesus told this parable of the persistent widow because he wanted us to always pray and not to faint. Um, Thessalonians says it like this, that we ought to pray without ceasing. That in a sense, uh, the call of Scripture is always that we are living in a praying time. And I was thinking about the witness of those desert mothers and fathers who went out into uh, the Egyptian and Syrian deserts at another praying time, at a time when uh, a powerful world leader, in fact, the leader of the largest world power uh, on the globe at that time, had a victory that was unanticipated. This was a long time ago, not recently, but, 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 but a, a victory that was unanticipated, and he and others attributed that victory to God. And in that moment, uh, what happened was people who were living in a praying time, who were seeing all kinds of injustice and oppression, Christians had to deal with the uh, double burden of that injustice being committed in their name. It was a praying time. Now again, I'm talking about the 4th century. I'm talking about the 4th century when Constantine was the emperor and had had the victory at the Milvian Bridge and, and when uh, Constantine began to offer favors to the church and people began to pray and to celebrate uh, Constantine as a great Christian leader. And there were in that praying time people who went out into the deserts. They said to dedicate themselves to prayer. It's a fascinating tradition, the tradition of the desert mothers and fathers. Uh, their, their, their wisdom, their sayings are recorded and passed down to us and within them we find this this fascinating account of uh, what it means to, uh, to be conduits of God's grace in a praying time. There's one story I love about uh, somebody who went out to Abba Joseph. He was one of these desert fathers who had been out there for a while. He had become a master of this tradition of praying, pray, devoting one's whole life to prayer, uh, to, to pray and never give up, as Jesus says. 
And somebody came out and said, Abba Joseph, I want to dedicate my whole life to prayer. I, I, I pray whenever I can. I read the scriptures. I fast two days a week. What more can I do, he says to Abba Joseph, in order to pursue God? And the story says that uh, Joseph stood up and stretched his hands to the heavens. And as the disciple uh, who had come to question him uh, witnessed it, uh, all ten of his fingers were on fire. And Abba Joseph said, if you want, you can become all flame. I don't know what that means. But I think the story is preserved because at the heart of this tradition, there is this sense of mystery, right? This incredible mystery that, that there is a possibility, there's something that God makes possible that we don't understand, right? That, that, that if you want to, you can turn into a fire. Uh, like that burning bush that Moses stumbles on in the desert. I mean, what is it? Who knows? God just says, take off your feet. You're standing on holy ground. There's that mystery. And yet in the midst of the mystery that I think these saints discovered in the desert, there's also an incredible pragmatism. So there's this other story about one of these disciples who comes out to the desert father and he says to him, um, you know, um, just this thing that, that we have before us today, this uh, question of what it means to always pray and never give up. What, what does it mean to pray without ceasing? He says, Father, tell, tell me, how can I pray without ceasing? And he says, well, I'll tell you what I do. I pray and I weave my basket. I pray and I weave my basket. Uh, this is where the monastic tradition of work and prayer comes from. While I say my prayers, I can center myself in prayer and I learn to pray while I work. And he said, uh, but I was long troubled because I didn't know how I could pray when I slept. And then I realized that if I pray and weave my basket, pray and weave my basket, then when I sell my basket at the market, I can give that money to the poor. And then when I sleep, they will pray for me. This is how I've learned to pray without ceasing. Uh, it's an incredible pragmatism, right? That this, this, this mystery that there's always more to learn, that there's something that we don't understand that's far beyond us. God is complete mystery, and yet there's a pragmatism to how we work this out, to how we can learn to pray without ceasing. I think of all those desert mothers and fathers and that combination of mystery and pragmatism whenever I remember Ann Atwater, who was in so many ways my spiritual ama. Uh, my spiritual grandmother here in Durham. We came to Durham uh, in 2003. And at that time, uh, whenever I went to anything that was happening in the community in Durham, uh, I noticed that Ann was there. She would be sitting in the back talking to people or something would come up and she would be uh, uh, Hollering, making a point. She, she, she could stand up and get loud real fast. But I began to uh, realize that um, this woman in our community had um, an incredible commitment, particularly to the people who were uh, overlooked, to the marginalized, to justice issues, um, uh, but was also a woman of deep faith. And so uh, I went to the Duke Divinity School, but after I had finished over there, I went to um, Ann and I said, I think I'm done with my indoor schooling, but I don't think I'm done learning. And I asked her if she would become my teacher, and she said, uh, uh, well, what do you mean? I said, well, you're a community organizer. I want, to learn that. I want to learn that from you. And she said, oh, that's simple. I said, what do you mean? She said, all I do is listen to you, 
until I learn what you want, and then I help you get it. And she said, when we get halfway to what you want, I'll tell you what I want, and then we can work together. And uh, I said, all right. Well, can we do that? And she said, she said well, I'll, I'll do that with you as long as you want. She said, under one condition, she said, you have to become my son. This is her way, always uh, adopting people into her family. And so what I wanted to do uh, today is just lift up a few things that uh, I learned from Ann Atwater. But I don't know a better way to do that than to first let you hear from her. And so one of the gifts is that um, before she died over at the School for Conversion, we were able to record some things. And uh, uh, Chris mentioned that we have a Ann Atwater library there. Uh, one of the things I would commend to you, uh, just, just, just for your uh, continued education and formation, is that um, we've developed an online archive of uh, this video that we're going to show in a second and uh, other interviews and uh, primary documents from her life. And so if you want to learn more about her, there's an archive on the School for Conversions website, and you can uh, explore that. There's also a Bible study there where you can learn more uh, about the connection between her and, and some scriptures. But um, I want to let you hear from her before I tell you about a few things that I've learned from her. So let's listen to Grandma Ann. Well, see, there was a lot of people, uh, poor-income black folks, that was afraid to speak up for themselves. And after my learning how to talk up Talk, you know, organized. I went out and started dragging them out, making them talk for themselves. And anytime they have having a problem, I'd always go with them to support them. But I'd make them talk first for themselves. And when they found out that, and still, and this was back uh, in '64, and they have not stopped calling me as of yet about help. Somebody's up called me this morning want to know what services did my church give and what services do I give. And I told them I just lend whatever God gave me to give out. God gave me, number one, the gift to reach out and touch. And when I feel that somebody called me for some help, God wants me to go on record as saying, I tried. All I had was God holding my back, and that's it. I had to wait, I had to really put out their own faith then, sure enough. He still got your back? He, got, he still got my back. And he always will have it, as long as I keep trusting in him. But you can't sell love. No, I, I'm not going to sell out. They said I had, but I am not. Somebody <laughs> said you sold out? Yeah, they said I sold out because I worked with a Klansman. And wow. uh, where I worked with a Klansman, and he changed from a Klansman to a Christian. And they said I had sold out. That he was a nigger lover, and uh, we we uh, was chosen to be co-chairs to uh, integrate the school system peacefully. CP was the head of the Klan, and uh, so I was just an activist with a loud mouth. Which CP? What's It's his Clavin Ellis. That's his name, Clavin uh, Paul Ellis, and uh, we called him CP, and uh, he. Um, was walking around and he didn't want it. He he didn't want that, and I particularly didn't want it at the time. But then I knew we were gonna have Bill One School, and the children had to get the best education they could. And I know if we weren't gonna look after our children, nobody else would. But we went to the schoolhouse and we found out that um, the teachers there were out of their field, 
And uh, so that's when me and him decided that we would work for the cause and not stop fussing and arguing because one was black and one was white. He was upset and I was upset. And he was cussing and calling all black folks niggers and I was calling all white folks crackers. And I couldn't stand white folks anyway. And uh, so it wasn't to way down in the meeting, you know, about the last week of it, is when the children talked to us and got us together saying that they wanted to go to school with each other. And then we looked at each other like fools. We've been arguing about the wrong thing and hadn't been doing anything to make the school system be better. And uh, that's when me and him started getting together. He, I saved his material. He hung it up on the wall one day at the meeting and I kept the boys from tearing it up. And uh, so he decided that I want his bad. He said, you ain't as bad as I thought you was. And he started talking to me and we started talking back. We went in the office and cried because we were doing things the wrong way. And just because one was black and one was white. Lady with the issue of blood, you know, she said if she could just touch but the hem of his garment, you know, she believed she would be made whole, and she was made whole. And so many of us have different issues, and if we could just clean up our issues, then we'd be better off. It sounds like hard work. <laughs> it is hard work when you want to, when you want to do it, you know. What is that up there? The Rosa Parks Award she wanted you to see. Like the Rosa Parks? Mm -hmm. She gave you an award? Yeah, and, and, and uh, they gave me, she presented it to me. 1982. In Texas. For, ex for extraordinary acts of ordinary people. Wow, that'll reach. To Ann George Atwater. Without power and privilege, you organized for civil rights and human empowerment. In poverty, you worked with poor and deprived citizens. You studied and became an advocate for social justice and community concerns. With compassion and humility, you boldly spoke and decisively acted to further the finest ideals of our national heritage. To, to, to further the good news of the gospel, too. Amen. <laughs> So Jesus says there was this judge who didn't honor God or people. But uh, there was a persistent widow who kept coming and asking for what she needed. And uh, in my experience, Ann Outwater was the most persistent widow I ever met. Uh, didn't care whether the judge or the mayor or the governor or the president, or whoever it was, uh, claimed to love God or people or anything else. She just knew what was right, and she knew what people needed. And the first thing I want to celebrate about how God's grace was evident in her, and what I feel like I, I learned from her, is that somehow in our discipleship, somehow in our formation in the way of Jesus, we have to come to feel the needs of people who aren't like us, 
people who aren't in the same. I mean, all of us feel our own needs, right? When you're hungry, you eat, or you hope you can. When you're thirsty, you want to get something to drink. And we learn to meet our needs. This is a basic part of human development, but I think a basic part of our spiritual development is learning to somehow feel the needs of others as something that we must be involved in. That's the way it was for Anne. I realized getting to know her that I, I, had, uh, I had had a kind of a spiritual malformation. Uh, I hadn't learned to feel, at least not in the way that she did, to feel that when somebody doesn't have what they need, you have to do something. She said there in the video, she often said it, God gave me the gift to reach out and touch. By that, I think she meant that she, in community, she could, she could feel the people that she was connected to, and she could feel the way that she was inextricably bound up with them. Uh, one morning, I went to her house. It was 10 or 11 in the morning, and this is when she was bedridden and uh, had to stay at home. She had been a goer and a doer all her life, and here she was stuck at home, sick at the end of her life in her bed. But uh, I remember this morning I got there. She was just finishing a phone call. She hung up. I said, uh, turn that phone over. It tells you how many calls you get a day. I said, how many calls have you already gotten this morning? She looked at it and she said, oh, my, I didn't realize it. There's 43 calls on there. <laughs> she, to, her, to the end of her day, she worked that phone from her bedroom, uh, like she was saying at the beginning there, getting calls from people who needed something and calling and, and just uh, demanding that whoever could do something, do something to meet the needs. I think that feel, that connection to people and to the needs of other people is a part of God's real grace in her life. And I think it's connected to the second thing I was thinking about, the way in which she had a faith in God's economy that was complete. That is, she believed what Gandhi said, that God had made enough for everyone's need, even if not for everyone's greed. The problem was not that there wasn't enough stuff. The problem was that the people who had the stuff weren't connected to the people that needed it. And so she was going to make sure they got connected. And she believed that, that you, th there would always be more so you could give away whatever you had. I remember one time, uh, she thought this was the funniest thing. She told me about it, and we just laughed and laughed. Brown University had invited her up to talk. And so she got on the airplane, and she flew up to Brown University, and she loved to talk to people. She told the story that she told there about her friendship with C.P. Ellis, the story that was made into the movie some of you may have seen called The Best of Enemies. Uh, she told that story. She told other stories about her organizing. She had a good old time. She tried to organize some of the students around issues that she thought was important because she was never one for just nostalgia. She didn't want to just remember stuff. She wanted to get people organized. So I can't remember what was happening at that moment, but I'm sure she was trying to get people registered to vote and organized to address something that day. But then she flew back, and the thing that she just thought was so funny is she said, I went up there and told them the same stories I tell anybody who comes here to my house, same stories I've told you. She said, and they paid me $5,000. <laughs> She couldn't believe it. But later that week, she called me and she said, Jonathan, I need some help. She said, I, I don't have any money to pay this light bill, and they say it's overdue. And I said, well, how much money do you need? She said, it's $123. 
And I said, well, Ann, didn't they just give you a check for $5,000? She said, oh, I already gave all that away. I got to find somebody to pay this bill. <laughs> and I just thought it was an incredible example of that, that, that notion of the open-handedness that God calls us to, you know, that there, there really is enough. And if you believe that, you can give what you have to meet the needs that are right in front of you and trust that, 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 that more will be there. Clarence Jordan used to say it like this when he was teaching the Sermon on the Mount. He said, uh, he said you know, Jesus says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Uh, Clarence Jordan, who was a Bible teacher from the South, he used to say, uh, y'all know what that means? Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. He said, we're all great at letting our left hand know what our right hand is doing. We come into church and we pull out our wallet and we say, I'm going to give $10. I'm going to give $20. I'm going to give $30. We, 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 we let our left hand know exactly what our right hand is doing as we pull the dollars out of our wallet. He said, Jesus said, don't do that. Jesus said, reach into your pocket and whatever's there, give it. He said, Jesus never said, give until it hurts. Jesus said, give until it's gone. <laughs> that's, the, that's, that's God's economy. If there's a need, which is not to say that uh, the only needs are the, the needs that the uh, church has, I'm Certainly not saying you should empty your wallet into the, into the church play every week. But, uh, uh, which is not to say you shouldn't support your church. But I'm talking, about, I'm talking about the big picture of God's economy, as was Clarence Jordan. And Ann Atwater was a beautiful example of this trust that there really is enough. And that if we each use what we have, you know, in the way that Jesus asked the disciples on that day when they weren't sure how to feed that big old crowd, Jesus didn't say... Uh, where can we find enough? Jesus said, what do you have? Right? And, and beginning with what they had, they broke it and it multiplied and there was enough for everyone. I think it's a beautiful picture of God's economy. And finally, what I wanted to say about her witness is that um, I really do believe that she invited me and so many others to recognize that beloved community is really about becoming part of a community of shared need. Shared human need, not shared affinity. You know, a lot of the ways we build community in our world is around some sort of affinity, right? We all end up in spaces with other people who look like us or have had similar experiences to us because... We know the same language and we like the same things, right? We eat the same kind of food. We listen to the same kind of music. As a matter of fact, there's a whole way of growing churches that was uh, developed um, uh, on what they called the homogenous unit principle. Are you familiar with this? This notion that the way to really get people together and grow churches is to uh, uh, pick the a radio station that is most popular in the area where you are and build a profile of who listens to that station. Um, Rick Warren out in Southern California said, it's Saddleback Jane and Joe. He said, these are people who listen to this radio station, who uh, work in these tech jobs, who you know have 2.3 kids and uh, uh, a house in the suburbs, and we're going to build a community that welcomes people like that. And as a matter of fact, you know, if you play that kind of music and you uh, cater to the needs of that demographic, you can get a whole bunch of the same kind of people in one place. In a certain way, it is effective. But I don't think that what happens in that way of gathering people it's really any different than what happens when we build shopping malls or when we, 
you know, launch another McDonald's franchise. You've, you, you've simply found a way to meet the uh, consumer desires of an existing population. And what Jesus came to establish in what the New Testament calls church, this ecclesia, this gathering of people who are called out of our existing divisions into this new humanity, into this beloved community, well, that, that's a very different thing. That brings people together who wouldn't have any other good reason to be together. That can bring a black woman who's a radical activist together with a Klansman to realize that they've been pitted against one another in ways that have hurt all of their children. And Anne helped me to see that that's really fundamentally based on meeting people at the level of our shared needs. Not our shared affinities, not our shared desires, not even our shared vision of you know, what this church could be or what this project could be or what this neighborhood could be. No, it's about realizing that at the end of the day, we all have similar needs, right? We all get hungry. We're all fundamentally uh, cracked vessels that need healing. We're all people who need fellowship and who need belonging. And in a beautiful way, in a way that was both exceptional in that it allowed that mysterious light of God to shine into the world and pragmatic in the sense that it didn't take any special degrees or training or resources. No, it, it, she just carried it out out of her HUD housing development home that she lived in over there off Highway 98 till the end of her days in a way that was both exceptional and pragmatic, revealed this, this way that we can live together into beloved community. And at the best, I think that's what the lives of the saints do. They show us what an incredible thing is possible when God gets involved in our lives. And yet they also reassure us that it's possible for people like you and me, for people like Ann Atwater and all the saints who we remember on this All Saints Sunday, it's possible for us to be knit together into something that is doable, but that is also as mysterious as some guy standing up in the desert with his hands stretched to heaven and saying, if you want to, you can become pure fire. <laughs> so I wanted to invite you to pray with me by singing a song that Anne loved. Whenever we got groups together, Anne and I taught together for the last decade of her life, and whenever we got groups together, she said, we can never stop without doing two things. We have to get people organized. So she would say, always pass a list around so you can follow up with people. Well, y'all are already organized as a church, so when we need you to do something, I'll just call Chris. So you're already organized. But she said, we've got to get people organized, and we have to get people singing. Because as Bernice Johnson Reagan said, the point of the song is to get us to the singing, and the point of the singing is to make us into a community. And so she was always teaching us songs that, that uh, help us do that. These songs work better if you stand up, because they're songs you sing with your whole body. This is one you've heard before, but I thought especially on this first Sunday of November, we would sing it uh, uh, in two verses uh, with one that can give us some basic instructions for this week. So it goes like this, guide my feet, Lord, while I run this race, oh Lord, guide my feet, Lord, 
while I run this race. Oh, Lord, and guide my feet, Lord, while I run this race. Cause I don't want to run this race in vain. Now it's November, so we're going to say, Guide my vote, Lord, while I run this race. Oh, yeah. Guide my vote, Lord, while I run this race. Oh, Lord, guide my vote, Lord, while I run this race. Cause I don't want to run this race in vain, race in vain. Amen. Y'all pretty good at that. Bless you.